Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you. It's a special privilege to have this amount of young people in front of you. I still consider myself young, but I realize that I'm getting further and further away from this age of the youth when I speak to youth. When I look at young people, I see tremendous potential. And I look over a room like this, and there's a lot of you here. I'm curious how many of you are from Virginia? Let's get your hands way up. How many of you are not? Let's, maybe that's an easier way to see. All right, not too many. You know, Virginia should never be the same. Ever thought about that? When you have whatever we have in this room, 80 plus young people from one state who have a passion for Jesus Christ and a desire to live out their faith in a meaningful way, that changes communities. So our theme this weekend is living life with purpose. And I don't enjoy titles. It's one of the worst things about speaking, in my opinion, trying to come up with a theme or a title for what you want to share. And I don't think I did a very good job of getting that to the committee here, so I apologize for that. What we want to do, though, is look over a number of different principles very quickly and try to impress on you as a group, on each of us, how important it is that you live lives that are governed by principles. And I'll explain more about that as we go along. But living life with purpose, it's quite a world we live in, a rapidly changing world. I've seen a lot of change in my lifetime already. You've probably noticed some things too. But suicide rates are at an all-time high in our world, North America. I think it's now the leading cause of death among young people. That's pretty staggering. Why is that? Well, one of the key reasons is because they have no purpose to live. And that should never be the experience of a Christian. Now, I understand and I say that carefully because I, I recognize that it's quite possible that there's some of you here in this room, sitting here now at this youth rally, who don't feel much purpose in your life. And I want you to live life with purpose. God wants you to live life with purpose. You guys slide over, maybe they can get a spot there. I could keep talking, but nobody's listening to me anyway until you all sit down. <laughs> it's good to have the place filled up, right? So even if you don't know why you're here this morning, God knows why you're here. God has a purpose for you, even if you don't understand it. I'd like to begin this morning in Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at a lot of different scriptures, so if you didn't bring your Bible this time, I would encourage you to bring it next time. And I expect to hear the pages turning of those Bibles. There's nothing particularly powerful about anything that I'm going to say, but there is very powerful things happen from the Word of God. And so that's what we want to use as our text throughout this weekend 
Beginning here in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, very familiar verses, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. So here we have salvation described in verse 1, or verse 11, sorry, the first verse I read. And that salvation comes from the grace of God. Notice also that it's available to all men. It's not only for you, not only for me, but it's for everyone. Notice also then that salvation has some effects. And just before we look at those effects here, I'd like you to think about salvation. What is salvation? I trust you all know, I'm sure you've heard many times, that you are, in fact, or were, dead in sin, okay? Sin separates from a holy God. It always does. It always will. And when we live in sin, we choose to sin. We choose what is wrong instead of what is right. We are separating ourselves from God. And every one of us has done that. Whether you believe it or whether you don't, I I could prove it to you. That's not the purpose of the message today. Just go to the Ten Commandments and take a little test for yourself, and you'll discover that, in fact, it's true when the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But you see, God didn't leave us in that place. He saw humanity as a sin-cursed people, separated from him, one who could never work themselves back into a place where they were right with God. So he sent Jesus, his son, the perfect Lamb of God, one who never sinned, and that's critically important to understand, Jesus never made a mistake. He never sinned. He didn't make an evil choice ever in his life. He came here to live as a perfect man, and he went to the cross as a perfect man, to purchase our salvation. When he died on the cross, he washed away, or had the potential to wash away, all sin of the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. When he died, sin was defeated. And the, the most powerful the most emphatic exclamation mark that ever happened in history is the moment when Jesus rose from the dead. You need to understand that if Jesus died, even if he's a perfect man, if he stayed dead, if he's still in the tomb, he's not my Savior, he's not your Savior, he's not anyone's Savior. But the moment when God looked down on his sacrifice on the cross, and the Bible says he was satisfied, the moment when Jesus came up from the tomb and was alive again is the moment when God said with great emphasis that I am satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's when Jesus Christ became your Savior and my Savior, the Savior of the world. 
He was emphasized as the one, the perfect sacrifice. Now, what does it mean to be saved? Well, Jesus says in John 3, we won't turn there, but he says that you must be born again. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus uses a very powerful illustration in that passage. Later in John 3, he refers back to an incident in the children of Israel's history. In Numbers 21, you can look it up later if you want. There was the account there where the children of Israel were murmuring, surprise, surprise, grumbling about what was happening in their lives. And God sent serpents into the midst of their camp. Now, don't picture you know, a little camping outing with your youth group where there's a dozen tents and you're all together. That's not what this was. They, there was probably 600,000 to 2 million people camping. This camp stretched from the center of the camp, stretched for about three miles in every direction of people. And into that murmuring camp, God sent, the Bible says, fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, and they began to bite people. And people were dying from the poison that they received from those snakes. And they came to Moses and they said, we're sorry, we're sorry, we didn't mean it, we're happy here, we're just take away the serpents. And you know, God could have sent the snakes back out just like he called them in, but he didn't do that. God told Moses to take a pole and to make a brazen serpent and to put a, a brazen or a an image of a snake in brass on the end of that pole and to stand it up in the middle of the camp. And that anyone who was bit by that snake, poisonous snake, and would look on that pole would then be saved. The poison would have no effect on on them. Now think about that. Did it make any logical sense? Could you explain how by looking at a brazen serpent on a pole poison would no longer have an effect? Could you explain that scientifically? No. And you know what? My imagination is a little bit wild sometimes, but I'm convinced that there were probably people in that camp who died after that brazen pole was set up. Why? Because they said it doesn't make any sense. What would you have done? There you were, minding your own business, near your tent, a mile from that pole, and suddenly a snake comes out from beside your tent and bites you on the leg. You know it's a poisonous snake. You know that there's now poison coursing through your veins, and you know that that poison will kill you. Okay? You do nothing, you'll die. Moses had told you that if you look in faith and believe on this serpent, look at this serpent, that poison will have none effect. It won't won't affect you. I believe many looked, many were saved. I believe some were stubborn and said, you know what, this doesn't make any sense. You know what happened? They died. Jesus is using that illustration as the most powerful illustration that he could use of what it means to be born again. Everyone in this room has been bit by the poisonous snake, okay? Every one of you have sin coursing through your veins or had sin coursing through your veins. And you know what you have to do to die in your sins? Nothing. You don't have to choose to go to hell. You don't have to choose to rebel against God. You already did it. But you know what? If we look in faith on the one who was lifted up on another pole and another time in history, the one Jesus Christ who was raised up on a cross for the salvation of all men, we look at him and we say, I believe in Jesus Christ. 
I believe he's the perfect sacrifice. I believe he can take away my sins. You know what happens to the, the poison going through your veins? It stops. No effect. And that's an unbelievably powerful truth. And that's what it means to be born again. The moment when you choose, by faith, to look on Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, His Holy Spirit comes and unites with your dead spirit inside you, and there's a union, and a new life is born, and that's what it means to be born again. And I hope every one of you have experienced that. If not, it's the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life, the most important decision you haven't made. Let me remind you again that the poison is coursing through your veins. Now understand that this series, what we're going to talk about this weekend, is post-salvation. Okay? That point where you are born again is only the very beginning, not the end. Very, very few people are saved and die. Very few people. Most of us are saved and then live out our salvation for a period of time until God calls us home. So what happens when we're saved? Well, the Bible says here that salvation also produces some results. Salvation's effects. Number one, it says there's some denying. Denying what? Denying ungodliness and denying worldly lusts. It also says that there's some living. You shall live. How? Soberly, righteously, and godly. In verse 14, it says Jesus gave himself for us. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus hang on the cross? Why did he die? Why did he come to redeem you? What answers it in that verse? It says that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I want you to know that salvation produces peculiar people. Now, when I think of the word peculiar, I don't think about it very often, to be honest. But it doesn't sound like a nice word. It doesn't sound like a good word. I think of someone who's weird. That's what I think about. And that's not really what the word means. And yet, you know what? Especially in our culture, a Christian is weird. I want you to think about this for a moment. When you look at this passage, verses 11 to 14 here, and you see what salvation does, If you were to observe a community, let's just imagine with me that you could, you know, rise up above, uh, hover above a mile, and you would have perfect vision. You could watch everyone do what everyone does, and you could see everything about them. You could understand their motives. You could see what they're doing and why they're doing it. And if you would watch for a while in that community, there would be some Christians and some non-Christians. When you observed, would you expect that the behavior of the Christian and the non-Christian would be almost the same? Is that what you would expect if you read this verse? Is that what you would look for? How many of you would expect that it's going to be virtually the same? 
How many of you would expect that there would be a dramatic difference between the two? You're allowed to raise your hand above your shoulder. I can't see it down there really so much. Of course, there should be a dramatic difference, right? I want you to think about this a little bit. Is there a dramatic difference between the way you live your life and the way your neighbors, non-Christian neighbors, live their lives? Has salvation produced in you a dramatic change? Are you dramatically different than you were before you were saved? And I'm not here to put anyone on a guilt trip, but let me just tell you this. If there's not a dramatic difference between the Christian and the non-Christian, it's not because God is not dramatically different from the world's. Because there's something wrong with the people who profess a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the Bible clearly says that when he gave himself for us, he did that to redeem us from all iniquity. That iniquity would be taken away from us. Sinfulness, that sinful desires within us would be protected or taken away and overridden by the power of Jesus Christ. So that we would be a set apart, a unique, a chosen for his purposes people. There should be a huge difference. And friends, if there's not a huge difference, the problem's not with God. It's with us. Now, the burden of my heart and the reason I want to share this series with you this weekend is because I've observed over the short time of my life that increasingly there is not that much difference between the one who professes a relationship with Christ and the one who doesn't. And I've noticed that there is a growing number of young people, young married people, middle-aged people, and some older people who are leaving behind what I would call biblical conservative Christianity. Maybe you don't like that word conservative, but I think you'll understand better what I mean in a minute. I see an increasing number who walk away. Maybe that's not happening at all in Virginia. I, I don't know. But just let me tell you a little bit about my experience. Maybe some of you can relate. I was baptized in 1998. Gives you a bit of an idea how old I am. How many of you weren't born in 1998? How many of you were born in 98? I thought there might be a number of hands. I am getting old, but I'm not that old. And I was baptized with six other young people, one guy and five girls. And today, as I stand here, only two of those and myself remain at my church. I'm only still worshiping with two of them. One of them, about two years after I was baptized with him, left the church, left Christianity, threw it all away. He's made a mess of his life, which is what always happens. Two more of them are no longer living out any kind of conservative Christianity. They would profess, I suspect, a relationship with Jesus, but I don't think any of their neighbors could ever tell, very rarely. 
They live like the world. They pursue the world's goals. They, that's what they do. When I think back to my young, my youth group, there's an incredibly disturbing trend. An increasing percentage of people who are choosing to walk away. In my youth group, when I think of the guys that I was with them in youth group, I don't know the exact numbers, but well over half of them are no longer in any kind of a conservative Christian church. And why is that? How many of you can relate to what I'm talking about? You ever see that in Virginia? Does it happen here? Maybe you're still too young. You know what? It's highly unlikely, let me just say it this way, that in five years, everyone in this room will still be in a biblical church, biblical conservative church. That trend is against us, okay? And that trend is very real. Now, here's the point. I am convinced that the majority of those young people that made the decision to throw it all away and have gone out to live after their pursuits, their goals, their dreams, whatever those all were, didn't do it with, a, with an understanding of what they were doing. They would probably never admit it, but I suspect most of the men that are now in their 30s, just like I am, some of them in their second marriages, some of them in their third or fourth relationship and still not in a real relationship, they would change, trade their lives with my life in a heartbeat if they had that opportunity. And you know what? They can't. Because they've chosen a different path. And I don't believe that they knew what they were doing when they made that decision. In my life, I've noticed an incredibly high number of people losing what I would call meaningful Christianity. In other words, a relationship that they have with Jesus. The one who is perfectly holy doesn't impact their daily life to the point where there is a discernible difference between themselves and their neighbors. Remember what we said a minute ago, if you were up at a thousand feet watching a community, you would expect there to be a significant difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. When there's not, that, that's a terrible thing. <clears throat> Here's a question. Why do you do it? And it's an important question because I believe the crux of the reason why so many have walked away in the last 20 years that I've seen. Because of their answers to this question. I see you sitting here and you look like a fine group of young people. Why do you do what you do? Why do you choose to live the way you live? Why do you do it? I think... That if we could all look into your heart and we could see the reasons why you're doing what you're doing, in many cases we could probably tell some of the signs that would lead a person to walk away.
Why do we do it? Well, I believe there's a number of reasons in Scripture, and we'll look at some of those reasons. Why are so many choosing no longer to do it? I see you sitting here, dressed modestly, properly. I see you sisters with veils on your heads. You've come, come to church. Why, why do you do those things? Why do you choose to live the way you're living? Now many have chosen to leave it behind, to walk away. Is that because God's reasons are not compelling enough? Or is it because we haven't done a good job of expressing God's reasons? For years, I've heard it, you've probably heard it, and it probably gets old and grates on you in a sense almost. But I've heard it said, I've had it said to me, you've probably had it said to you, think about where your grandchildren will be. You heard that before? You know what? That explanation is not working. Look around us. It's not working. You know what? It's 100% true. It is 100% true. And I'll show you why it's true. Just if you give me a few minutes here, I'd like to illustrate. I'm not going to give you that reason, and we're not going to use that reason, but I want to just show you how powerful it is. Can I get just a few of you guys here from the front bench to stand up for a minute? We don't have a lot of room, and I didn't practice this illustration, so I hope it kind of makes a point. But if we can just come over here. We'll have one of you stand right at this corner. And just stand here with your arms kind of like this. And what this is going to represent is your great-grandpa, or whatever we got here, okay? And you're looking forward in life, and this is a path that you're willing to take. This is where you believe God wants you to live out your Christianity. That, that's the path. Now, while we all accept, there's a little bit of variety we would all accept, right? That's what your arms represent, okay? There's a course that could be a little off-center here, but would still be okay with grandpa, right? So you stand here and just do that, right? And when just have your arms about so you can see that door down one arm and there, okay? Now, next one of you, just take two steps forward from here, all right? And put your arms up. But now you didn't choose the same course that Grandpa chose, okay? You turned just a little bit, all right? You stand there like that. Now do the same thing again. Take another two steps, and we're going to have to offset a little bit, and then turn a little bit. Not that. <laughs> <laughs> Grandpa wouldn't even let you come home for the reunion. Oh, you wouldn't? No, sorry. Just turn a little more. That's a little <laughs> Narrow up your arms a bit. There you go. Now, one more. I'm standing over here. You turn a little more yet. Put your arms up. Okay. Now, look. If you look down your arms from here, the course that you would now see as an acceptable path for your children and grandchildren, look at how much different that is than where grandpa started. And that's only four generations, okay? That is what happens. You look at, you don't have to believe anyone that's ever told you that, but this is what happened. This is the truth, okay? In a few short generations, the young people in that generation will no longer even see what Grandpa chose as his course at dead center. They won't even see it as an option anymore. Why? Because they don't believe anything there is necessary. 
Do you see what I'm trying to illustrate? All right, you guys can sit down. Now here's another little crazy statistic. I like numbers and I like statistics. And I think this came from Rich Bowman, so maybe you've all, many of you have heard it already. But if in six generations, if each generation has six children, do you know how many people are represented in the sixth generation? Do you know how many people there are now? We would have had to go two more but can now no longer even see the path that Grandpa set as a course of how to follow the Bible and how to follow God's ways? 50,000 people. You didn't think that number would be that big, did you? Go home and do the math. It's true. 50,000 people. Young people, the choices you make about where is acceptable for you to live out your Christian life the choice you make today is going to affect in six generations about 50,000 people that will bear your name. That's not very long. That's not a long time. So the reason, the, the emphasis that so many people have given you that will think about where your grandchildren will be, that is a very, very true statement. And it's a very profound statement, but let me say again that it's not working. Okay? Young people are not choosing the right way because of that statement. It, it, most are not, or many are not. Maybe I should say it that way. So why do you do it? Let me just ask you a number of questions. Why do you do this? Why does it matter? I just want you to think in your mind. You don't have to answer. You don't have to record your answers. But I just want you to think. The choices we make in life affect a lot of different things. I'm just going to ask you some random questions. Why is it wrong for a Christian to cheat on exams? Why do you do it? Why wouldn't you do it? Why should a Christian report all of their income on their tax return, even if they were paid in cash? Why should a Christian woman not attend a public beach in a bathing suit? Why should the Christian not fight to defend his property? Why is it sinful to play games of war or killing on a computer, etc.? Why is it important that we don't allow impure thoughts in our minds? Is it really sin for young unmarried couples in 2016 to engage in physical intimacy? Why? Why is it sinful for a Christian to masturbate? Why is it inappropriate for a Christian to listen to sensual music? Why should a Christian not own a Lamborghini? I don't see anyone beat red, so maybe no one does. What about a yacht? Just in the news recently, I think there was a $2.5 million lot, yacht, sorry, burning 
in flames sitting in a resort somewhere. Why not? Why shouldn't a Christian own one? Why would a 10,000-square-foot single-dwelling home be strange for a Christian? Why don't you have a different fashionable set of clothes for every day of the year? Why is it sinful to brag about your accomplishments? Why should a Christian not run around wearing a Beatles t-shirt? Why do we avoid the entertainment produced in Hollywood? Why is it sinful for a man to go to the bar and join in the fun? Why is it important that a Christian is not consumed with sports? Why is it wrong to hold hateful feelings towards another? Why is it sinful to refuse to help those in need? Why is it wrong to break the speed limit deliberately? Why is it sin to disobey your boss? On and on and on we could ask questions about practical things in life. Why? 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 Young people, why do you do it? Why don't you do it? What is the answer? Look at where your grandchildren will be. My church says so. You know what? Those answers aren't working. And they won't work. So why do you do it? We're going to look at three reasons here in this session yet. And I believe they're biblical reasons. They're good reasons. Is the reason you do it obedience? In other words, God says, so we do. The phrase, thus saith the Lord, a a statement of authority is 415 times in the Old Testament. So after all, God did say a lot of things. The Bible is full of those things. Remember, God created us. God created the world. God wrote the book. Here it is. We have it in front of us. He said it. We ought to do it. That's not really an unreasonable expectation, is it? God Almighty expects us to obey. Sometimes, as a dad, especially with my younger children, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and probably from two to three is about my favorite stage of a young guy's development, at least to this point. They're just so much fun. They're so innocent, and they're trying to understand everything, and I just really enjoy that stage. So sometimes as a dad, just for fun, I will tell him to do things. Not because he really has to or because he really should, just because I enjoy watching him respond to this command. And he doesn't really know what he's trying to do or why, but he, he wants to obey me. And what I'm really doing is just exercising authority. And you can say I'm corrupt, but it kind of feels good. <laughs> <clears throat> I can think of a time we, were, we got out of the van when we got home from church on a Sunday morning, and he's in his best clothes. And he got out, and it was still winter time, and there was 
snow melting off in the garage, so there's little water puddles flowing from the van. And if you know anything about boys and water, you know what the first thing is that he tried to do when he got out of the van. He was going to go get in the water. And I said to him, don't go in the water. And he stopped. He looked at me, and you know he still wanted to go in the water. And then I said to him, jump over the water. And they were just little, little streams this wide flowing through there. But he's two years old. And it was just fascinating to me to watch his little wheels sprinting. Jump was a, like, that's a stretch for a two-year-old to jump. And I said, jump over the water. So he's trying in his mind to put this all together. And it was so funny to watch. He's standing there, and he's trying to jump. And, you know, he can't, can't hardly get his feet off the ground. And the first three or four times he tries to jump, oh, he just goes up. But he keeps trying, and he keeps trying. And finally, he's, he's actually almost jumping over the water. You know what I said and he did? Is that why you do it? Is that why? You know, there's people that actually believe God is a little bit like me and just enjoys exercising authority over his creation. You know, he just likes sitting up there on his throne and saying, you got to do that and you can't do that. Don't do this, do that. Just to make your life miserable. You know what? God's not like that at all. After all, Jesus said, if you love me, what? How do you show your love for God? Keep my commandments. Come on, Jesus is just a loving guy that died on the cross for our sins. He doesn't have any commands, right? Have you read your Bible lately? You can't read very far in the Sermon on the Mount without coming to command after command after command of what a Christian should do and what a Christian should not do. Young people, while obedience is an important reason, I don't believe it can be the only reason why you do what you do. I don't believe that because God says can be the only reason. Second reason we look at this morning is that of protection. You notice the guardrail there. I have a little guardrail story to tell you. My daughter and I were driving here in my mother-in-law's vehicle. That's always a bad start. <laughs> she doesn't know this yet, so you can't tell her. Because <clears throat> i got to tell her. I was driving along on highway... And I don't know exactly, I don't know what I was looking at or where I had looked, but I looked away for a second, and I looked up, and the vehicle in front of me was stopped, like, stopped. And I was doing about 50 mile an hour. And there was a, well, I could have ran into the back of them, I knew that wasn't the best option. So I uh, swerved hard to the left, I was in the left lane, down into the grass, between the grass, there was only about a lane width between the guardrail and the vehicle that I would have hit. And I got into that space, but I kind of hit the back corner of the Jeep against the guardrail, and it added some character to the back corner. <laughs> but I was glad the guardrail was there. It wouldn't have been there. My tail probably would have been over in oncoming traffic. 
So is the reason that we have, is the reason we do it, is the reason we have standards for guardrails. God's protecting us. There's so many things that he's protecting us from. Second Samuel 2.9, he will keep thy feet, the feet of his saints. Another example as a parent, in our house, we heat our house with a wood stove, a lot of it. And a wood stove is hot. Well, one and two-year-olds don't understand what a stove is. They don't understand that it's important they stay back, so you just teach them to stay back, okay? And we have a little mantle area or a raised area where the stove is up on, and we didn't just tell them that he got to stay away from the stove. That whole area there in front of the stove, it's only about a foot wide there, where, but he's not allowed on any of that either, okay? That's just no man's land. He's not allowed to go there. Now, one of the problems with the reason of or logic of protection is that what happens when it's summertime and we're no longer heating the house with a wood stove and the stove's no longer hot. And one day, little Johnny decides, you know what, I'm going to check this out. And he climbs up there on that little raised area and he touches the stove. And is it hot? No, it's not hot at all. It's cold. Now, what does that do to my credibility, the power of my words in his mind? And friends, I don't want to make too much of this, but I think it's true that there are times where we as leaders in the church and as a church body with good intentions and good meaning and important reasons have said, you know what, this guardrail needs to be here, right here. If you go any further, you're going to fall over the cliff, like that picture you're looking at there. And young people, and sometimes older people, decide, you know what, I'm going to climb over that guardrail. And they step out there on the other side, and they don't fall over the cliff. At least not immediately. And there's times, I believe, where we've actually... How do I say this? We've caused people to doubt the importance of where the boundaries are. Not intentionally, and not because we weren't, we didn't do it right, and not because, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying those boundaries shouldn't be there. But if the reason that you believe you're doing what you're doing, if the reason to all the questions I raised, why do you do it, is for protection, you're going to discover at times that that protection is not that important. And if protection is the only reason for you to do it, you're not going to do it anymore. And by the time you figure out that you're going to be destroyed and you're going to be hurt by what's over there on the other side of the fence, it's going to be too late. The same reason those young guys that I grew up with Two of my closest friends now are in their second or third relationship because they didn't think those boundaries mattered. And you know, when they started out, when they crossed them the first time, nothing dramatic happened. We set boundaries back from the real danger. I believe with all my heart that God's rules The rules of conduct as a Christian do protect the Christian from harm. It makes you healthier. It protects you from many entangling things that would get much worse. 
But again, I say, while God's protection is vitally important, it can't be the main reason that you do what you do. The third reason I want to look at is identity. In the Old Testament, there's an interesting passage in Numbers 15 there. We can turn to it. I hear some of you grabbing Bibles. I told you I was going to have you look in your Bibles, so let's look in our Bibles. Numbers 15. Verse 37 says, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe, that you may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them, and that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye use to go a whoring, that ye may remember and do all my commandments, and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. God told the children of Israel to specifically put a blue ribbon in their garment, on the edge of their garment. And he told them to do it for three reasons. It was a reminder to them of all his commands. It was a reminder for them not to seek after what they would choose in their own eyes. And it was a reminder for them to be holy unto their God. It set them apart. It made them identifiable. It was a part of their identity. They were different from their neighbors. They were different from the nations around them. And God wanted them to know that. And God gave that to them as a way of identifying themselves. When the children of Israel fled from Egypt, God said to them, one of the reasons that he was taking them out of Egypt was that they may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. It's God's intention that there would be an identifiable, noticeable difference between his children and the children of the world. In the New Testament... In 2 Corinthians 6.17, it says, Come out and be separate. We're to be different. We're to be a light of the world. We already looked at this phrase, peculiar people. In 1 Peter 2, we have a holy nation, a chosen generation. It goes on to describe the difference in behavior there. Is this the main reason why we do what we do? Is this the reason that we are different from our neighbors? For identity? I believe, again, that there's many times where churches and church leaders have used the identity argument as a motivation of why you do what you do. And again, it's a biblical argument. But again, I say, it's important, yes. Is it the motivation? I don't think so. So why do you do it? <clears throat> why do you do what you do? We've looked at three reasons. 
First, obedience. Secondly, protection. And thirdly, identity. Could there be another reason? Is it possible that there's a fourth reason? Maybe more than four. And is it one that would better explain and better have us understand what it means to live with a purpose? To better understand why we do what we do. That's the goal of this weekend. I want you to come away from these, this week and don't go home now because you think I'm going to talk about dress and how long your dress should be and how short your sleeve should be. That's not what we're going to talk about, okay? But we are going to talk about why you do those things. And I believe there is a deeper reason. It's my prayer that by the leading of the Holy Spirit, we'll be able to explain it from Scripture and that you'll be able to grasp it and build your life on the principles that we want to look at. So I'm just going to have a word of prayer, and then I'll turn it back to Derek. Father, we come to you at the close of this session. We thank you for meeting with us here. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it. And Father, we pray that you would give us clear leading and direction as we go forward. I pray for these young people. I pray that you would build in their hearts conviction, an understanding, a comprehension of what it means to live for you. I pray that they could come away from this weekend living life with a purpose. That they would understand why you've put them here. And that they would understand why they're doing the things they're doing in a deeper way. Father, bless our time and lead us throughout it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.